Welcome to The Looking Glass, a series that examines stories in all their varieties. I'm Peter Creighton. Hi, this is Pete, and thank you so much for listening to The Looking Glass podcast. It's been a while since we've last spoken, and man, has the world changed during that time period. First, I'd like to say I hope you and your families are staying safe during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I've been holed up uh, at home, working, keeping busy, and really falling back in love with radio. Um, Over the last uh, couple weeks, uh, I've really been listening to a lot of my local Chicago radio stations. And one of them in particular did something last week that just is standing out in my brain so much. And that's 101 WKQX, uh, formerly known as Q101. Uh, They did a 34-hour marathon to raise funds for local music venues here in the Chicagoland area. And it was great. They had live interviews with bands like Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day. They played killer music. And it just served as a great reminder why radio is such an incredible medium. And it also reminded me how much... Uh, of my youth was spent listening to Q101 and it sent me to my bookshelf and I found this great book that a legendary Chicago DJ wrote back in 2012. It's called We Appreciate Your Enthusiasm, The Oral History of Q101 and it's written by James Van Ostel, which if you live in the Chicagoland area, you know him as JVO. Now, I was really lucky enough back in 2012 to interview JVO about uh, his book on Q101. And I went through my external hard drives and I was lucky enough, I was able to find the interview. So I thought it would be fun uh, to play it for you right now. It's a little bit dated. The quality is a little here and there, but you know, it is eight years old. But if you love Chicago radio, just like I do, Uh, This is a can't-miss interview, so that's why I'd like to share with you. So right now, here is my interview with JVO on his book, We Appreciate the Enthusiasm, The Oral History of Q101. WKQX Chicago, Q101. For Chicagoans between the ages of 18 to 34, these call letters were more than just representing a radio station. It was a lifestyle. It was an identity. For many of us, Q101 provided the soundtrack to our lives. Then, in 2011, Q101 went off the air, but its legacy lived on in the minds of its fans. Here now to speak with us is one of its legendary DJs, James Van Ostel, better known as JVO. JVO recently completed a book, which is a first-person oral history of Q101, told by those who worked there. JVO, welcome to WXAV. Now, the book is called We Appreciate Your Enthusiasm, The Oral History of Q101, Volume 1. What was your motivation for writing this book? The Volume 1 is kind of a mistake. I think when I put together the details for Amazon, I accidentally checked that box. So there will be no future volumes. Um, (laughs) as As to the motivation for the book, you know, the station got sold. A new owner signed up, and it's, it's usually a foregone conclusion in broadcasting that when someone new takes over a media company, there will be drastic changes. I assume that would happen to Q101, and I had long wanted to tell a radio story, and it seemed like, well, here's a perfect occasion. The station will probably be going away. 
So it's a story that has a beginning and end date, and, and it's just it's, the idea presented itself. And you know, within a day of finding out that the station had been sold, I went on to Kickstarter, the crowdfunding site, Kickstarter.com, and started campaigning to get this book published. And you were successful, and was published uh, last November, was it correct? Yep, end of November. End of November, and it's a great book. Highly recommend you check it out. Um, now, in the book, you discussed how you approached some of the former staff members of Q101 and uh, talked to them about participating in the project. And you talk about some of their reactions. What were some of the reactions you had uh, when you told them that you were writing a book about Q101? Yeah, you know, a lot of people, I, there, I think there was some concern uh, with some of the, the air staff, how they'd be portrayed and represented. Uh, a lot of people reacted with, well, who's really going to care? But you know, there were a lot of people who thought, oh, this is great. I'm glad someone's telling this story. In fact, I, w- I would say the majority of people responded like that. So it was mainly positive feedback that you got from it. Yeah, I think so. Excellent. Now, there's some great stories in the book. Um, you cover Samantha James and Lance getting engaged on the air, which was yeah. awesome. You covered the feud with Rock 103.5. And then you just have some of the regular stories of just doing an on-air shift and what that was like. Is there a favorite story in the book that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, there are a lot. I mean, I think it really is a sum of the parts, the book that is. There are so many great, like you said, there are the the bigger stories and just the, you know, the goofiness of, you know, Zoltar, this overnight DJ who who would come in. He was kind of enigmatic. No one really knew his backstory. He'd come in, light candles, have weird, like, goth dominatrices hanging out with him at night. I mean, just a lot of that scene setting, I think, is really interesting and fun. And it just seems like as I was reading the book, you just you never knew what you were going to expect when you walk into uh, the Q101 studios. Well, that became more true as the years progressed, yeah. I mean, I, I've seen midgets. I've seen nudity in the workplace. I've seen uh, boozing in the workplace. I've seen lots of things that you don't see at, say, Bank of America. Yeah, I can believe it. In your introduction in the book, there's this great line, and it says, quote, I hated the idea of losing Q101, despite the fact that I'd find it maddening to listen to more often than not. <laughs> you know, if I was going to summarize Q101 as a listener, I think that summarizes it, because the whole idea of Q101 is brilliant. It's awesome. But then when you would listen to it, it just never really lived up to that potential. Why do you think that was so for Q101? Why does that line apply so well to Q101? Well, a lot of reasons. And I think... You know, the secret to being successful in the arts, or well, actually in business, is take chances. If you're going to fail, fail big. Q101 failed big a lot. I mean, they took a lot of chances. They did a lot of stuff that was safe, but they went out on a bunch of limbs. Not all of them were successful. Taking that one step further, there were a lot of management changes over the years, and every new manager tried to disrupt what had happened before, carve a new path. And I think the product became really inconsistent. I mean, if you look at things like branding and building an image, Q1's brand was damaged over the years because the fans who listened to it one year weren't liking what happened the next year, and by the same token, fans who just started getting into it had no interest in what had come before. That was a musical thing, that was an air talent thing. It was just, from year to year, it was a very different product. The people who listened in the 90s weren't getting the same product in 2002, and the people who tuned in in 2006 had no use for what happened around 2000. It was inconsistent. And one of the biggest inconsistencies, and you covered in the book, 
is the revolving door of morning shows. It yeah. just seemed like up until Man Cow and then after Man Cow, there was just never a stable morning show on Q101. Do you think it was some of the management issues that caused the revolving door of, uh, of morning shows, or do you think there was some other underlying factor with it? Well, sure. No, it was management. It was ratings. But you know, consider the fact that, especially in the 1990s, morning drive was a big deal in radio. Your morning talent, that was your cornerstone marquee talent. And that's where all the sales numbers came from. That's where all the audience was generated from. So if you didn't have a quick pop, if you didn't have big numbers, big sales numbers, big ratings right away, it sounded some alarms. And management was never all that comfortable waiting things out. They may have believed in talent, but if the numbers weren't going in the right direction, they'd quickly try and pivot or change direction uh, just to save their own skin. So in, in many ways, those morning shows, those changes you, you talk about in the 90s especially, were driven by, I don't know, fear, uh, concern, uh, a need to make sure that things were going in the right direction. It was hard to invest in a talent from management's perspective because they wanted to they, they wanted to find that silver bullet that would slay the beast. In your opinion, was there any morning show that you thought could have actually made it on Q101 that was just never really given the chance to? Robert Chase, if given time, could have been a great morning host. But the idea of doing, you know, a music-intensive morning show is is toxic to people who run radio stations. Uh, Wendy and Bill had moments. Um, they were a little disconnected from the overall vibe of the station, but and they're talented, talented folks. Um, Lance and Stoli were a pretty awful show, but it was because they had they got no management feedback whatsoever. They had no direction. These were guys who had never done radio before. I think if management had taken the time to teach them how to do their jobs, they could have been better than what they were. Now, you were speaking about there with uh, a, a disconnect with the rest of the station image, and none so is more evident, and you mentioned this in the book, is when uh, Mancow got signed to uh, Q101 and how it really almost became two separate radio stations. Uh, you had Mancow in the morning, and then you had Q101 the rest of the day. How did his show impact Q101 overall, and how do you think his show may have impacted the legacy of this radio station? Let's be clear. Q101 was struggling before Mancow came on board. Uh, the mix was starting to rise up and challenge Q101. Musically, the state of popular music around 1997, 1998 kind of sucked. Q101, grunge had already come and gone. Alternative music has... The, the big thing in popular music, had, that was over. So you had a station that was playing Korn, Sarah McLaughlin, and The Prodigy, bands that should not inter intersect in any conceivable Venn diagram. It was, it was a tough time. The station was struggling to find identity. Truth be told, Mancow was a, a real saving point for the station. I realize a lot of people were turned off by the idea, but he was, at that time, the biggest radio personality in Chicago. And he was mercurial, and he polarized a lot of people. But Q101 was not exactly, you know, taking down names when Mancow came on board. They had good ratings, but it, the long-term prospects, I don't think, were spectacular. Mm -hmm. I, I think Mancow helped pull it together. So he was almost like a stabilizing force then for the radio station. Well, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, just in pure objective terms, Mancow came on board, the ratings and revenues skyrocketed. I don't, they didn't go up. They skyrocketed. Again, you may not like Mancow, and I get that. Some people don't. 
but it, from a from a if you if you're a business guy, if you're one of those guys sitting in the ivory tower corporate office, it made great business sense. It, it, it was took the main competitor off the dial. It killed Rockwell on three five, mm-hmm. um, and, and it, it helped rebrand the station. Again, not everyone's choice, but it really did help Q and a one. Is there one thing in your mind that stands out as this was the beginning of the end for Q101? Was there a moment where you said, I can see this station going off the air? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, it really was the death by a thousand cuts, to use that cliche. I mean, they did a lot of things that were wrong. I, when Mancow came on board, it did change the station, but the station really fought against what Mancow was. So you'd have, you know, you kind of alluded to it, mm-hmm. you'd have these different presentations. You'd have station running imagers saying, you know, Man Cow Mornings, Q and One Music all day. Like the two couldn't exist in the same place. So you'd have Man Cow doing his thing and it would be this big in your face morning show. And then you'd come out of that and there'd be Tori Amos, uh, you know, something off the Little Earthquakes album. So the station kind of fought against what it could have been. And at that time, it had evolved into a rock station. Popular music was rock based. You know, Limp Biscuit, Creed. All that heavy-handed stuff, that was the zeitgeist at the, at the time. And q one kind of fought against it, trying to reclaim its alternative heritage. And it kind of became a mess. And then over the years, it, 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 it lost the script. The wheels came off. They tried that shuffle thing. Mm-hmm. Then they tried to rock more. They tried a new morning show, which was a disaster called The Morning Fix. Yeah. It, it was death by a thousand cuts. It's funny you mentioned uh, uh, Limp Bizkit. I'll never forget, I was listening to a Top 9 at 9 and I actually think you might have been the host of it, where you played Lump Biscuit's Nookie nine times in a row, because that was the most requested song of the day. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. yeah um, I probably should have, in hindsight, I probably should have included that in the book, but yeah. I think the less written about Lump uh, Biscuit, the better, though. Sure. No, you no, know. Yeah. Um, now, as a radio fan, the last two weeks Q101 was on the air. I mean, I was glued to my radio. Growing up, Q101 was the station that I gravitated towards. And it was some of the best radio I ever heard, you know, hearing all the old jocks coming back in. You had Jim Jesus, you had Brian the Whipping Boy, you had Sludge. I mean, you had all these people coming back. As a broadcaster, I know you weren't in studio for most of it, but what was it like? I mean, were you able to listen to the last two weeks at all? And I know you did a couple phone calls with them, too. What was it like as a broadcaster participating in those last two weeks of Q101? Yeah, my participation was on that last day. I was uh, in Minneapolis at the time, and I called into Tim's show and then I was on with Chris Payne towards the end of the, the, the station. As a listener, I thought it was great. I, I thought there were some real, as they say, teachable moments. I mean, we learned a lot that radio, when allowed to stretch out and be creative and let talent be thoughtful and, and engaging, can be pretty a pretty fantastic experience. The DJs were allowed to say what they wanted, play what they wanted. And it created this feeling that, uh, holy crap, if, if I don't listen, I'm going to miss something. Mm-hmm. Radio has not created that sense for years. I, there's not a single station, all due respect to WXAV, I love it. Uh, there has not been a single station that I can think of in years that has that, that's been able to create that sense of excitement. That, oh my gosh, I wonder what they're doing now. In fact, I know what they're doing now. They're, they've got a syndicated DJ. They're playing the same song they played three hours ago. There's no excitement anymore in radio, and Q101 those last two weeks was able to capture that excitement. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. What's Q101's legacy in Chicago radio? Oh, I don't know. I, I think the word legacy has such big connotations. It was a great moment in time. It was uh, 
the first true quote unquote alternative station that the city ever had. Um, it created a lot of talented people. I mean, it took a lot of chances with people that were on the air, myself included. Um, I, I think it stands as an interesting moment in time I, I, for people like like you. I mean, it was a really important station growing up. But at the end of the end of the day, it's still a radio station. I don't know how how big a legacy one music radio station can create, unless you're XRT, which has been on the air since the, I don't know the Nixon administration. You kind of talked about it earlier, and you touched on it. How would you describe the current state of radio now in Chicago and nationwide? And in your opinion, what does radio need to do to remain relevant? Uh, the second one's a really big question. The first one, the state of radio now is it's a disaster. It is an absolute unmitigated disaster, and I'm not convinced it's something that can be recovered from. I mean, if I look at my iPhone right now, it's set... I've got my Bluetooth ready to go so that I can listen to my iPhone through my car, and I'm listening to podcasts. I, I've been listening to you know, a couple baseball podcasts. I listen to Sound Opinions from WBEZ. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to the Steve Dahl Network, which I'm part of. I mean, I'm not listening to radio because I know what I'm going to get on radio. Podcasts, to me at least, are kind of a new frontier in a very niche and very specialized world that, that I think is really exciting. What can radio do? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I, I, I think the people running radio right now are, are so focused on how to keep the lights on for another 24 hours. It's hard for anyone to have any kind of long-term creative vision. Um, it, it's a tough question. I, I, I would root for radio to succeed and pull themselves out of it, but I think they're in deep. Do you think podcasting can overtake radio down the road? Um, I, overtake is strong. I think... I think podcasting will become more and more viable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think its initial struggles were every amateur in the world was trying it, so there was a lot of junk and it was hard to sift through to get the good stuff. And I think a lot of people just perceptually didn't understand how the medium worked. I think people thought, podcasting, do I need to have an iPod to listen? Mm-hmm. I think as, as the days have marched on, people have become more aware and as more legitimate broadcasters have kind of moved in that direction. Adam Carolla being a great example. Yeah, Steve um, Dahl, too. Well, exactly. Yeah. I, um, you know, I work with Steve, and uh, I think it's added, added a lot of legitimacy and familiarity to the medium. And there's there's so much great stuff out there, and it's you know it's on demand, it's time-shifted listening, and it's great. Now, um, for people who may not have listened to your podcast, how can they go about checking out your podcast on the Steve Dahl Network? Uh, Dahl.com. I do a weekly music interview show. So I've talked to everyone from... You know, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers like you know, Jefferson Airplane and the Kinks to Chicago local bands to, you know, blues legends. It's it's a whole lot of variety that there's no way I could have done on the radio. JVO, it's been an honor talking to you today. Thank you oh, so God. much. It is, yep. it is. It's um, The book is in stores. It's called We Appreciate Your Enthusiasm, The Oral History of Q101. The complete story, no volume two. Don't look for it. This is it. <laughs> You got it. JVO, thanks. Thank you. And that was my interview with legendary Chicago DJ James Van Alstel, a.k.a. JVO, on the history of Q101. I really hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, I think what I'll be doing over the next coming weeks and months is just going through my archive and finding old, interesting interviews that uh, I have, and I'll post them up here. Uh, for you to uh, to listen to. I'm still trying to work on getting some uh, 
some new content created. So uh, I appreciate your patience on that. And as always, please uh, write a review on Apple Podcasts or on uh, Google Podcasts. It really helps the show out. And uh, thank you again for listening and your support over the years. I'm Peter Creighton, and this is the Looking Glass Podcast.